for most people, I believe, there is always some deviation somewhere. And welcome to the Think Philosophy Podcast. In today's session, we're going to talk about sex. Well, actually, not sex itself, but the history of concepts of sex. And I want to cover three different kind of stages that we have passed historically in thinking about sex difference. We're going to talk about a one sex model, a two sex model, and the continuum model of sex difference. So let's start with the one sex model. This model goes back to Aristotle and Aristotle's work on reproduction. And I'm relying here on Nancy Twana's research, which she published in a book called The Less Noble Sex, where she goes into quite a bit of detail about the uh, Aristotle's theories of reproduction. But the gist of it is that Aristotle proposed a one-sex system that explains sexual difference in terms of the development of the fetus in the womb. Now, the female child, the girl child, is the result of a fetus that's undercooked because the womb has been too cold and too wet during gestation. So it's a less developed fetus. The male fetus is a fully developed fetus that emerges if the womb is dry and hot enough. And this has repercussions for the different, the, the, the judgments about the capabilities of the different sexes so that males are fully developed physically, so they're stronger physically. They also have higher intellectual capacities. And along with that comes the ability for judgment, ethically and politically superior judgment to females whose underdevelopment means that they're weaker sex, why? That they're weaker physically that they have lesser intellectual capacities and also that they have less judgment where it comes to ethical and political thinking. So this view, which is a one-sex model, uh, predominates all the way up into the Victorian era, which is when we get a two-sex system. And the two-sex system says that the differences between male and female are a difference of kind and not of degree, which is what we'll get later with a continuum model. So this system postulates that there is male and female and that those two kinds are uh, mutually exclusive so that males and masculinity uh, are found together always and female and femininity are found together always and that there's also no possibilities outside of those two. So they are all encompassing. Now, the problem with this, of course, is that we have some males that behave or have personalities that are considered to be uh, feminine and that you have females whose personalities and traits and interests tend to align with more masculine pursuits. And so this led to a conundrum about how that was possible if these two types or these two kinds were mutually exclusive. And this led to the study of what later came to be named as inversion. That is, males who act feminine and have feminine interests and females who have masculinity as part of their personality. And specifically, this kind of zooms in on the study of sexuality. So inversion was really a study of homosexuality. That is the belief that males who 
act in a feminine way are attracted to other males. And so that gender inversion was thought to be the manifestation of sexual identity, of uh, homosexuality, and vice versa, that the mannish woman was also necessarily a lesbian. Now, what's the problem with this situation or this explanation of sex difference and where it goes awry? The problem is that (laughs) males who are feminine or exhibit feminine traits are attracted to other males who often do not exhibit feminine traits, right? So within male homosexuality, you have the bifurcation of masculinity, one being more feminine, the other being more masculine. So what are you going to do with that? Because you have males who are masculine who nonetheless are attracted to other males. And the way that the theory developed at this point was to say, well, there's active and passive forms of inversion. So the true homosexual was the man who exhibited femininity and who was attracted to other men. And they had to recruit, was the word that was used, or to persuade males who were perverse, but they their, their masculinity was perverted in the sense that they were attracted to other males, but who nonetheless appeared to be normal in other ways. They were thought to be passive homosexuals whose homosexuality would not be activated or would not come out unless they were in a situation where they were proximate to and they were able to be, I guess, persuaded or convinced by the true homosexuals to engage in perverse behaviors. On the female side of things, it gets a little bit murkier, but nonetheless, they tried to kind of just map on their idea of male homosexuality onto lesbian homosexuality and to say that the mannish lesbian who was active, who was uh, aggressive, was the true active um, invert. And and her counterpart was a feminine uh, woman who kind of fell into the throes of the mannish lesbian. So that's how inversion works, basically. I mean, there were different theories of inversion, and there was some argument about how things were mapped out. But this is how we went from a two-sex difference onto beginnings of a continuum model. And this is how it kind of worked. At this point... The kind of psychological and cultural studies of gender differences are passed over into biology. And biology, science is tasked with trying to prove or to find the cause of inversion. And what they initially thought was that there was a hormonal difference between males and females, so that males uh, came about through the play of testosterone in the body, and females, of course, were associated with estrogen. And initially, they thought this accounted for sexual difference at the biological level. But lo and behold, they found that males, even very masculine males, had some level of estrogen in their bodies and vice versa, that females had some level of testosterone. So now science can't prove or doesn't have the origin or the cause for sex difference. And So they began to develop what's called the continuum model. And the continuum model basically puts two bookends, male and female or masculine and feminine, 
along a continuum and says everybody, all humans, fall along this continuum to some degree so that the mannish uh, woman is closer to the masculine side of things and the feminine man is closer to the female side of the continuum so that homosexuality falls somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, Or the continuum is anchored, as it were, in the middle by the phenomena of inversion or homosexuality. The continuum model comes out of the study of endocrinology in the 1930s, and the work, specifically with the work of Louis uh, Terman and his research assistant, Catherine Cox Miles, they together did a study and developed a test that came to be called the MF test, and it was a way to measure the degree of masculinity and femininity in individuals by asking them questions about their interest, their proclivities, the activities that they um, enjoy, et cetera, et cetera. And this MF test became also a measure of homosexuality or the propensity towards homosexuality. The the whole point of this was to try to identify early on people who would be perverted or who would be maladjusted to help them to kind of achieve heterosexuality and to fit into the reproductive model for heterosexuality. At the same time, in the 1930s, anthropologists are also studying sex and different. And specifically, we have the work of Frank Boas in the School of Culture and Personality. Now, one of Frank Boas's uh, students was Margaret Mead. And Margaret Mead was really uh, famous or has come to be known for her studies of other cultures and the way that sex and gender differences are mapped differently in other cultures. The big picture here is that whereas all cultures have some conception of sex and gender, the things that are associated with the different genders and sexes vary by culture so that one culture might have what we call feminine traits associated with males and what we think of as masculine traits associated with females. Those things might be configured differently in different cultures. So the idea was that for Margaret Mead, the the outcome of this was to say that if culture was more tolerant and and, um, open about gender differences that there would be less homosexuality because people would be able to adjust better to more open and permeable gender roles. But she was really a lone voice at this time because what became of a lot of this research was the ability, the tools, the analysis to try to change people who didn't conform to gender norms and this at this time is very much tied with homosexuality and homosexual practices to help them to change, <laughs> to adapt to a culture that needs, has, has a need for what later will be called compulsory and reproductive heterosexuality. Underlying these theories in the early 20th century is psychoanalysis and psychology. And Freud's belief that we are all initially bisexual and that it is through cultural means, through acculturation, that girls develop into heterosexual women and that men develop into heterosexual men. 
And that if something goes wrong with that culturally, uh, that cultural process of indoctrination and of adjustment to cultural norms, that that is when you end up with people who are gender nonconforming or who are homosexual in their practices or in their proclivities. And we see this all the way into the middle of the 20th century with the Kinsey studies, where Kinsey developed further this continuum model by saying that, you know, everyone falls along a continuum between heterosexuality and homosexuality. And he kind of details different um, degrees of bisexuality, homosexuality, and um, heterosexuality. And we very much still live with a continuum model. I think most of us would be very comfortable uh with that kind of uh, assessment of not only sex difference, but gender difference, sexuality difference, and gender expression differences. So the continuum model has done a lot of work in the 20th century. And it's not until postmodern queer theory that you get a little bit of a challenge but uh, and a pushback on this type of model. People begin to think about sexuality not in a linear on a linear model, but more of a galaxy model where you have um, you can map uh, sexuality, sex identity, gender identity, gender expression uh, in a galaxy of many possibilities that can line up in different ways, so that you can have a woman who exhibit exhibits masculine traits, uh, generally associated with uh, being aggressive, being active, being interested in certain things like, I don't know, sports and politics and philosophy, whatnot, that you can have a heterosexual woman who's interested in those things. uh, Or you can have a feminine woman (laughs) who's interested in those things as well. So that the causal necessity, the links between your assigned at birth sex, the gender that you develop with the gendered behaviors and norms that you develop from that, your sexuality and your gender expression all line up when everything is sort of properly goes well. Uh, But for most people, I believe there is always some deviation somewhere, right? We all have our ways of adopting and of um, misinterpreting, let's say, gendered norms and of adjusting to uh, a normative reproductive heterosexuality. So that on the kind of queer theory view, the norm is kind of an illusion. There is no kind of perfectly aligned person. Most of us or all of us, let's say even, are queer in some way. That is, we deviate from these norms in idiosyncratic ways that um, have sometimes historical causes, sometimes developmental causes, sometimes they might be biological causes as well, as is somewhat the case with intersex individuals. This is a very kind of rapid overview of the uh, history of concepts of sex that I think will be helpful once we get into some of the queer postmodern theories about um, personal identities, specifically um, sexualized and gendered identities. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I will catch you on the next roundabout. <laughs>